the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Over 50 years ago, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about the fierce urgency of now as he sought to make America at long last live up to the promises of our founding. Our guest today on The Keeper is another man of the cloth, Father Patrick Dubois, who understands the fierce urgency of history and the need to document it and claim its secrets before all the witnesses to the past are gone. Father Dubois is the author of the book, The Holocaust by Bullets, which recounts his mission to uncover the truth behind the murder of one and a half million Jews in the Ukraine. With utter dedication and quiet determination, Father Dubois has succeeded in breaking the code of silence and the cloak of invisibility surrounding these unimaginable crimes. Please join us for our conversation. Father Dubois, you have been called to a historic and in many ways a terrible mission of identifying and documenting the undiscovered mass graves of Jews who were slaughtered in the Ukraine and elsewhere during World War II. You have referred to this as the Holocaust by bullets, and your research suggests that as many as 1.5 million Jews were murdered this way in as many as 2,000 sites. This is really difficult work, and I want to ask you, do you feel at some level that God has called you to this work, or did you come to it yourself? I think it's both. First, it was a family research. My grandfather was deported in July 42 from France to Ukraine, and we never spoke about what happened. And so it stayed like a request inside myself when he passed away to know the truth and to go there. But I had not the opportunity, it was not possible, it was in Soviet Union, and so finally the story went on, and uh, I think also it was God's call, because I went to Ravaruska, the village where it was, and I was thinking only to go one time, two times. I realized that they shot 18,000 Jews in Ravaruska, plus 24,000 Soviet prisoners, plus an unknown number of gypsies. Nobody wanted to speak. And suddenly, suddenly, without my request... Yaroslav, the new mayor of the city, he has found, in fact, the last mass grave of Ravoruska, and he has collected 50 farmers who were present at the killing site the day of the shooting of the Jews, and so these people were waiting for me. And I think that was, but it's still today the dynamic of my research. As I say, 50 farmers were waiting for me this day. I didn't realize that more than 2 million Jews were waiting for me, dead Jews. Thousands and thousands of witnesses, because now we have interviewed more than 5,200 witnesses. So when my team go over, because now we have five teams in my organization, I always say they wait for us. It's an incredible story. And as you've just suggested, an integral part of your work is interviewing and recording the testimony of the surviving witnesses of these massacres, now 5,000 individuals that you have spoken with. 
Obviously, most of them were children or teenagers when the killings took place, and some of them, from what I've read, are eager, almost desperate to talk to you, to kind of unburden themselves to you as a priest, and it's almost as though you're in the role of a confessor. The confession, because first, the confession is secret, so I couldn't reveal what they say, and I couldn't have a camera and film it. It's more a deposition. They know their memory will be kept forever. And I'm not the only one. We are more than 20 persons in Irad, in my organization. And, but I have succeeded to train young people to do in the same way, not to judge, only to listen and to find where are the corpse, who killed the Jews, and what happened after and before, and what was also the Jewish life in the village. So it's sure that uh, it was not easy to suspend our judgment, I would say. That's just the next question that I wanted to ask you, because you do make a point of listening to them, taking their depositions, as you say, without judgment. But I have to be honest, many of us, and I myself am a daughter of Holocaust survivors, find that not only that it would be hard for us to do, but in a way it's hard for us to swallow. Do these individuals show some sense of contrition or guilt Maybe not for what they did, because perhaps they had no choice or no option, but for what they didn't do, for their silence over the years. Most of the questions that we have now are questions of people who are living in democracy since we are born. Say what we think, uh, we could have been a party or another party, but when you were under Stalin and the successors, you know, the people I interviewed had uh, sometimes 70 years of Soviet life. So never the right to say one minute what you think, what you feel. When I see somebody, I don't ask him, what did you feel? I say, uh, why do you have chosen this day to kill the Jews? At which time they phone to you from the Gestapo? Where were the cars on the right side, on the left side? What was the color of the cars? Very factual question because it's an investigation about a crime. And even if the guy was working, the Gestapo for me is the best witness because he knows everything. So it's why we don't show what we think to find the truth. We have the choice to express ourselves or to find the truth. Your focus is to find the truth. Do you ever find yourself asking yourself the question, what would I have done had I been in the shoes of these, of course, many of them children, but some of them teenagers? Do you ever confront um, maybe after a day of taking these depositions and this testimony, do you find yourself haunted by questions about your own moral dilemma had you been in their shoes? No, what happens is that sometime we finish the interview very sad. I remember one old man, he told me when he was a child in his family, they were hiding two Jews. It's Rick was a boy, a little boy, six years old, and Maria as a mother. And suddenly the German realized that there's staying still two Jews alive. So they phoned to the neighbors who were from German origin, German-Soviet, and they asked them to come and shoot the people. And so a German arrived with a rifle. He brought Maria and it's in a field, and Maria was begging not to be shot, and he shot her with a bullet in the head. And after it's ran away, and he was crying, Mama, Mama. And it took five times for the shooters to kill him because he was not a professional. And after he dressed the corpse and he burned them with sunny flowers. And uh, we were making this interview in a beautiful field of sunny flowers. Since this day, uh, I don't like sunny flowers because for me, it smells of death. And we came back in the car this day very sad and very silent because it was not the Jews. It was not 
1000, it was Itzrik and Anna. These are haunting stories, and I can imagine that it is emotionally painful and exhausting and sometimes overwhelming for you and your team members to do this work. That returns to this other question of why you feel it is so important to uncover this truth. What is the meaning of these testimonies, the meaning of locating these massacre sites? What is the meaning of bringing a measure of honor and dignity to the victims themselves? The main reason also is that we have to give back the debt to the family. You know, many families write us and ask, in which mass grave is my mom? In which mass grave is my uncle? And many of these families today buy a flight ticket and say Kaddish for the first time since 42 and finally build a family memorial because they want to know in which mass grave is their mom, in which mass grave is a grandfather. And I will give you an example, a family from Los Angeles. They knew the family perhaps has been shot, but they didn't know where. From my team, from Yahad, we sent in the village where they were from, and they found the three person who knew the family. So the Los Angeles family bought a flight ticket and went to this village. And suddenly they realized that somebody was painting the execution and was the painting was still in the village. So they bought the painting and they recognized on the painting grandpa and grandma near the mass grave. It was a revolution because they knew where they came from. The other fact is to give back the Jews to the Jewish people or the Roma to the Roma people. And the third thing is that we cannot build democracy on mass graves. If we forget that 2 million point three Jews were shot, if we build supermarket, highways, if it was nothing to kill 2 million point three Jews plus the gypsies, why to make problem for a killing of Jews in Paris, in Brussels, in Munich, in London? So it's also an act of prevention to say, now we will come back. And the last reason is that the mass killers today, they copy Hitler. Hitler has a legacy. Today, nobody rebuilds in Auschwitz. Not even a camp, because they are afraid of the satellite, of the journalists. They kill people by shooting, by bombing, or by cutting the throat. They learned. Proper school, I would say, today is a school of the mass killers. So we want to show the continuity. It's why I work also in Iraq, because unfortunately it's the same evil. Will you talk for a minute about your work regarding the Yazidi genocide? I know that you have worked on gathering of testimony and depositions regarding the ISIS genocide against the Yazidis. When I saw the black man arriving with the black flags, when I saw this Yazidi civilian running not to be killed, I took time to pray and I say, no, this time I will not stay behind my chair making Facebook statements on Messenger. No, we need to go to Iraq because now evil is working again in the same way. And so by providence, we met a Yazidi who was from there. Now we have built a team to investigate in Iraq. We have been 10 times in one year and a half. We have interrogated 250 people from any age, young boys, old people, men, women, to establish what is the strategy of ISIS. When ISIS came in a village, he said, convert to Islam, put a white flag, and you will receive a new ID at the municipality hall. And so the people went to the municipality hall, and when they entered, they closed the door, they take all the newborn babies, they are taken away and they will be given to radical Islam family. They choose with doctors or girls who are virgin. They will sell them by groups and one by one. And after they take the old people and they will serve as human shield and the men are shot. 
and the young boys are chosen to be trained in terrorist camps. So I published also a book in France called Fabric de Terrorist, but normally I should publish in America in April. Yahad, my organization, in the same way we revealed what the Einsatz Gruppen did with the Jews day by day, we are now to reveal it and to work with justice because these people need to be judged for genocide. Until now, nobody has been accused of genocide in ISIS. Well, it's incredibly important work. As you know, the U.S. State Department did make a finding that ISIS was guilty of genocide vis-à-vis the Yazidi community. But you're right, no indictment has been brought yet. In '45, the State Department or my government of Europe say, oh, Hitler made a genocide, and that's it. Exactly. The finding of genocide is meaningless unless there is action to hold people to account. Talk, if you would, for a minute about the rising danger of both Holocaust denial and what I referred to as Holocaust dismissal. People not so much saying the Holocaust didn't happen, but it's old news, it wasn't as bad as people said it was. They say, okay, the Holocaust is far away. 70 years ago, we paid the bill. Many movies, many museums, many commemorations. Now we are free to say again, we are neo-Nazi, we hate the Jews, we hate the Gypsy, we hate the Black, we hate anybody who is not like us. We see that in America, but I see that also in Germany, in France. In the same way, the people who hate the Jews deny their genocide because it's the best way to take any legitimacy to the Jewish people and to Israel. So we see that the taboo is gone. Now, unfortunately, the deniers are young people who really believe that it never existed. It was a trick to make money to build Israel. It's incredibly disturbing. I would not have imagined that in my lifetime this level of Holocaust denial could have gained such traction. And as you say, what's really frightening is the young generation who really don't know for themselves and seem all too willing to ignore the evidence of history. When I teach in Georgetown, or when my other people teach in Sorbonne in Paris or in Cologne in Germany, I always say, uh, sometimes people say there is Shoah fatigue, but in the planet there is no Hitler fatigue. But Hitler has a strong legacy. Stalin has not a strong legacy. When you go in a Arab country, you don't find books of Stalin or Mao, Pol Pot, only about Hitler. Hitler stays the brunt of the mass killers reference. We have not to underestimate this impact. The problem is that people could think it's far away, so now we can turn the page and think of something else. But the people who are in the legacy of Hitler don't turn the page, they open it. One of the things you said, Father Dubois, is that you've learned about humanity, that everybody can be a killer, anybody can be a victim. And I want to push back a little on that. Of course, anyone can be a victim, but it's a terrible thought that anyone could be a killer. And I found myself thinking about the time when you worked with Mother Teresa, a remarkable individual, and obviously we are not all real saints like Mother Teresa, but could she have become a killer? I interrogated so many people in Ukraine, in Belarus, in Russia, in Poland, in Romania, Moldavia. I interviewed killers and I interviewed also people who saved Jews. When I knock at the door, when they open the door and say, oh, welcome, Father Patrick, I don't know if they kill Jews or save Jews. We have the same face, the same smile. And I will discover it during the interview. And nothing special in the house, nothing special in their face. So I think, unfortunately, yes, everybody can be a killer. Everybody can be a victim, too. I don't know if I have been trained in Hitler Jugend with all the family. I cannot imagine, because my family was all partisan. 
And I see now in Iraq a family of Islamists, of radical Islamists who are killing, raping women and so on. We always ask, how are the children? Always the slave, the slave, as it is say, powerful, very violent against us. And his wife, powerful mm-hmm. also. She was beating me and so on. So I discovered uh, you can show a few persons, but in fact, the genocide is, is a disease which is very contagious. You know, when you think you could be a superman, an ubermensch, and you have the right to kill the people who are not like you, I think you cross the line and you have difficulty to come back. So it's why ISIS attracted so many people from all our countries. There were people from France, from Germany, Australia, from China, of course, all Arabic countries, from Canada, from America. Why? Because these people suddenly they could be considered as ubermensch. And when you have the right to kill legalist people, it seems you run. So I never saw a mass killer missing workers. But, you know, I think about the righteous among the nations who are recognized at Yad Vashem. I think about those shining lights in the darkness, people like Raoul Wallenberg, like Irene Sendler, others, who restore our faith in humanity and who seem to demonstrate that we do retain the moral choice to do the right thing. And that's why we are so in awe of those who are willing to put their own lives, their own safety, everything on the line to live up to some inner conviction of morality. All my organization, Yarad, is investigating about the crime. So we interviewed a few people who saved people and said it very simply. But I would say when you have a genocide, you have a majority who is not killing and who is not saving. They only look for their food and to keep their life and to have a good life and to go on in spite of the world. After you have a minority who are among the killers, are ready for anything to kill their neighbors and to take their belongings and their girls. And after there is an ultra minority who is taking risks to save the people, what is frightening me is that majority of people today are sleeping. They don't realize if there is a genocide or not on the planet, it's not their problem. As long as it doesn't reach their school, their street, their color, why to worry? So relatively optimist for a young generation. It's why I teach in Georgetown. But I believe in minority. Of course, it's a minority who saves the Jews. It's a minority who saves the Yazidi. But you can ask around you how many people save the Yazidi. Me, I can give you a very short list. Tell us a little bit about your collaboration with the United States Holocaust Museum and the new ground that you've broken in terms of the kind of evidence you've gathered and figuring out because of the spent cartridges. What is some of the new ground you've broken in terms of forensically figuring out what went on? What we succeeded to do is to show that for every crime there is evidence. When you kill two, three thousand Jews or 97 gypsies in your garden, you can find back the cartridges, you can find back the lost bullets, you can find back the jewels of the girl that they threw before being shot because the Jewish girl didn't want to give her jewels to the German. You have the testimony of the neighbors. You have the Soviet archives and the German archives. So it's minimum five network of evidences. So I would say to the Jews, you are strong if you know the evidences. We have to teach Holocaust in another way because you cannot teach Holocaust like you teach Versailles or Napoleon. Nobody denies Napoleon. So when you're in front of deniers, you have to show the crime and to show the evidences. Not as symbol as a fact, but as proof that it was a crime. And so I say, learn the evidences, teach in another way. 
you have not to be afraid because you know exactly the evidences, but you have to know them and to transmit them to be strong. So I think we have to think the teaching and transmission of Holocaust in another way because the deniers will be stronger and stronger and sooner or later, Holocaust will be seen like a belief. When you uncover a site of a massacre, do you try to see to it that there's some sort of a memorial place there or a plaque or some sort of marker? What is happening to try and recognize the solemn and sacred nature of these sites that you have uncovered? We don't mark graves because the neighbors will reopen it immediately to look for gold teeth, take the jewels. And in many villages in some countries, the bones today are scattered outside because the neighbors reopen each mass grave. It's like gold mines. What we do is to connect with the families who go there and protect them like family. We worked also with American Jewish Committee who protected big four sites. And perhaps in the future, when we have finished, perhaps ourselves will protect sites. But for the moment, we are running to finish to find the money and the people because we still miss one million Jews. And we estimate that there is only four years to find them because the witnesses are old. So for the moment, we are not working to protect the grave, but to find the million Jews missing. It's why you have always a team on the ground. It's why also we are raising money for that, because in four years, the people will not find, will never be found. So you really are in a race against time. Yeah, it's a difficult position because we are running against time to find all the Jews and gypsies. And at the same time, we have to fight against ISIS because we're also shooting in my country. And same time, we have teaching to new generation. I'd like to close with a couple of questions that are perhaps a little more personal. You have said that you are not a typical priest, and I would absolutely agree with that. And if what I read is correct, you were an agnostic or perhaps even an atheist when you began your studies in mathematics at the university. How did you find God, or perhaps did God find you, and why did you become a priest? You know, it followed me like a storm when I discovered the faith or when I was thinking for the first time to be a priest. I was thinking I was losing my brain <laughs> to rest and to sleep a full weekend and you will forget it. Weekend passed away and uh, I waited for a Christian that I knew. I was in a rush. Monday morning, my friends were coming back from their cities to the campus of university. And I went to the cafeteria and I told them, I think I will be a priest. And my best friend was a girl. She was falling down in the cafeteria. <laughs> And she never forget this day, I think she was putting on the coffee on the table and opening eyes. I told him, I don't know why I say that, but I think I will not avoid it. Mm-hmm. I tried to avoid it for a long time because I was never thinking not to have children, not to be married. So it was not at all in my planning. Suddenly I had to make my life in this way. Have you ever regretted it? No, because uh, sometimes you say, oh, I would like to have children. Sometimes you say, oh, why I, I didn't teach in Africa like I was. But... When I see the life, I could have said, no, I was so worried. You know, for me, to be priest and to do what I do is to do what I have to do. When I was a child, I was always worried. People would ask me, what, what are you doing? I say, I'm worried. You know, I am never worried. Well, I can imagine you're never bored. The last question I would like to ask you is, what do you think your grandfather Claudius would say if you could tell him of your work? Do you think it would bring him some peace and closure to know that his grandson was telling the story he never could? I don't know. If he was still alive, I think I would take a microphone and a camera and tell him, oh, it's enough, you have to speak. And you have to say the truth, because I think I will never know the complete truth. I learned that the French prisoners were forced to dig the mass grave of 18,000 Jews. I don't know if he was in the group. I will never know it. 
and I'm sure, I'm sure he was a very special person because I met many families of survivors and this camp, the camp of Ravaruska, and we are a few ones like me who are fighting for the truth today in heritage of my, um, our grandparents or our parents. He was a fighter, but you know, I looked like him physically completely. When I was a child, when I was six years old, my parents had a shop and many clients went and say, oh, the grandfather, when they look at me. We look like each other, so I think his reaction would be my reaction, and perhaps my reaction is his reaction. You know, in, I will finish to say in the Jewish tradition, there is a belief of the Gilgul. The Gilgul is the belief that perhaps the grandfather is coming back on earth to finish his mitzvot, and in many Jewish families, we give a name to a newborn baby, second name, the name of the grandfather, in case. I always felt like a Gilgul. When I meet people, I say, oh, perhaps I met you 100 years ago. That's a very powerful way to end this. Thank you so much, Father Dubois, for sharing your incredible story and your incredible work with us. I'm very, very grateful for Mr. Lantos. He made also great thing, you know, as a position he got in America, he could only enjoy his position and that's it. And that's not what stays in the planet. The memory of Mr. Lantos is strong because in the position he was reaching, he could have a very sleepy life, and it was not the case. He was not only a politician, he was really a light in the shadow of the planet. Father Dubois is a remarkable man and something of a paradox. He has been a relentless investigator, documenting mass murder after mass murder, and literally leaving no stone unturned in his determination to uncover the truth. And yet, for the witnesses, and in some cases, accomplices to these unspeakable crimes, he has almost been their confessor, the one who has allowed them to express the horrors they witnessed. Somehow, Father Dubois has learned to live with the reality of ultimate evil without losing his faith in God's ultimate goodness. But even for him, the lesson is not complete. I would like to close with Father Dubois' own words from his book, The Holocaust by Bullets. He writes, Since childhood, I have been aware that God and evil exist. My first theology assignment at the seminary was entitled, The Providence of God, the Existence of Evil. I believe I have yet to finish the assignment. I'm Katrina Lanto-Sweat. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Keeper. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work and for more information on today's guest and topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.